Hey, we are glad you're here, and um, Brian Carroll did a great job sort of setting up this morning uh, in terms of content, um, and so I'll, I'll add a little bit more to it, but basically what we're doing is we're looking, um, we're in the second week of looking at the church, right? And so typically when we think about the church, we think red brick building, you know, maybe a white building with a little cross on top, maybe think about a graveyard out back. Some of you may think about you know, really good children's ministry and light shows. I don't know what you think about, but there are different, different thoughts and images that come to mind when you think about the church. Um, my goal um, throughout the course of this series is to try to get your mind um, and your heart, for that matter, as much as possible to line up with what the scripture's image of the church is supposed to be. And so we, we took a look last week at Matthew chapter 16. And uh, this is, you know, kind of getting on toward the middle of Jesus' ministry there in Matthew. And, and Jesus takes the disciples, and he takes them on a six-day journey by foot. They, they walk up to the foot of Mount Hermon. And at the foot of Mount Hermon, you know, again, I told you last week, there are all these idols that are placed into the walls of the face of the rock there in Mount Hermon. And there's three temples at the foot of um, that cliff, and there's a big cave. And the cave there is where the headwaters of the Jordan uh, River begin. That cave is called uh, the Gates of Hades, interestingly enough. And uh, in that context, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give him all sorts of different answers. And then Peter says, um, I think you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon your confession, Peter, that rock, I'm going to build my church. He uses the word church. And the word that he uses, it's the first time that that word is used in in Scripture. And the word he uses for church is the term ekklesia, which is actually really kind of a political term. It's a Greek term, which means uh, the called out ones or the gathered ones. And it was a political term in that what it was usually used for was when a group of people wanted to call for a vote of no confidence for a politician, they would send a crier out into the streets to ecclesia, to gather the people together. And it was essentially the beginning of a revolution where they were revolting against a corrupt politician or a corrupt political system. And so when Jesus used this term ecclesia, you can imagine the disciples going, yes, all right, it's beginning. We're going to kick the Romans out, right? Jesus is going to like pull a sword out from somewhere and bright you know, silver armor, and he's going to start you know, kicking some fanny and taking names. And, and so when they heard that term ecclesia, what they would have thought is they would have thought, great, a revolution. A revolution is finally beginning. And Jesus was indeed calling them to a revolution, but a revolution very different than the typical revolutions we see in the world, in history. And, and so last week what we talked about so we said that Jesus called the disciples, and he's also calling us to take part in a revolution. That's what the church is. And because the church is actually supposed to be a revolution, that makes us revolutionaries, right? And so all of a sudden, for those of you who thought that going to church meant dressing up, wearing nice clothes, you know, carrying your little leather-bound Bible, and getting ready to sing some songs and sit quietly, the good news for some of you who are more action-oriented is that this uh, church that Jesus invites us to uh, is actually a revolution. There, there is singing, that's good. There is reading of scripture, that's great. There's prayer. There's all those things, but it's much more than that. And over the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at the five different things or actions um, that the church is supposed to be involved in. And the five things the church is supposed to be involved in are up on the screen. It's uh, that they're supposed to be involved in revolutionary worship, 
revolutionary teaching, revolutionary fellowship, revolutionary mercy and justice, and revolutionary evangelism, right? Each of those things are, are supposed to be functions of the church. Every healthy church should be involved in doing those five things, and they should be involved in doing them in a way that, uh, that is revolutionary. Let's take one moment before we jump into these today, and, uh, and let's pray. Father, thank you very much for your word. Thank you for these people that you have drawn into this place today. And Father, as I mentioned earlier, I, I simply would ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit to work in our midst, and I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to, to draw each of us into encounter an encounter with you, the living God. And Father, for some, that may be the first time, and for others of us, Father, we may have been um, walking with you for a long time, we may have drifted further and further away from you, but I ask this morning that through the power of your Spirit, that you would draw us back to yourself, that we would have a life-changing encounter with you, uh, the living God. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. I'm going to ask really quickly that you um, look back up at the screen, and I'm going to put some pictures up on the screen. There's going to be a theme that goes throughout these pictures, and when they're done, I'm going to ask you verbally to tell me uh, what you think the theme of these pictures uh, is. So picture number one, this is a, a painting by a guy named Edward Hopper. Um, look for a moment at that. All right, next slide. Another picture. Let me ask for a moment. could be a couple different things, but let me ask if anybody wants to hazard a guess what they think the theme, the unifying theme of those pictures is. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Yeah. That, I, I can't believe that Julie said that, but yes. Um, thank you very much, Julie Chambers. I appreciate it. I think that was you anyway. Yeah, it is. Awesome. <laughs> so shy. <clears throat> so, yeah, so withdrawn. Anyway, thank you. Seriously. That, there's nothing worse than like asking that question and having silence. Anyway, all right, yeah. So you're right. Loneliness is the answer to that question. Now let me let me tell you a couple things really quickly. Um, <clears throat> so there's a guy named David Brooks who writes for the New York Times. He also has written several best-selling books: Bobos in Paradise, On Paradise Drive, uh, The Human Animal, all these kind of different things. Great books. One of the things that he said, and I believe it was on Paradise Drive, he basically had done all this research and he said this generation, and this book was actually written now like 12 or 13 years ago. But he said, this generation of Americans is the loneliest generation ever. He said, this generation of Americans is the loneliest generation ever. And basically what he was saying is, we, you know, we as Americans in particular live in this kind of world where we, you know, we basically hop in our car in the morning, we open up the garage door, we drive down a highway by ourselves to some job where we sit in a cubicle, you know, maybe you see somebody and say, hey, a couple times, maybe you lunch with somebody else, maybe not. You go back to the cubicle, and then you get back in your car, you drive back to your house, you press the button, your garage door opens up, you drive back in, you go inside, you turn on the TV, you watch the TV a little bit, maybe you eat some sort of dinner, you watch a little more, you go to bed. It's a lonely existence. He said this is the loneliest generation of humanity ever. And he goes on in his book to talk about all the different negative impacts of being isolated, insulated, and completely ingrown as human beings. It is really, really unhealthy. In fact, there was a statistic that I read on, on loneliness, and it basically said that uh, over 20% of Americans 
report being chronically lonely. In other words, one out of five Americans says, I really am lonely all the time. And, and the idea of loneliness is this, this subjective sort of um, description of saying, I want either deeper relationships than I've got, and I, and I don't have them, or I want relationships, period, and I don't have enough. But it's this idea of, I feel like I'm isolated. I feel like I'm alone. There's an article in Psychology Today uh, recently written on loneliness. I'm going to put the quote up on the screen. And uh, this is what the article had to say. It says, what makes us happiest in life? Some people may point to fabulous fame and fortune, but hands down, surveys show that friends and family are the real prize, right? Now, what's interesting is um, there's all sorts of research out there on loneliness, and it all says there are these two elements to loneliness. There's either the absence of family connectedness um, or uh, friendship connectedness. And essentially, you can have a great family relationship, but if you don't have friends, you feel lonely. If you don't have uh, friendships and great deep friendships, um, if you do have those but you don't have family, you can feel lonely. And so basically it talks about these things. And he goes on to say, Yet even though our need to connect is innate, some of us always go home alone. You may have people around you throughout the day, or you may even be in a lifelong marriage, yet you may feel a deep down loneliness. Not surprisingly, isolation can affect one's mental and physical health to great detriment. There's also research that shows that um, when there are, there's a couple that have been married for a long time, that when one um, of those uh, you know, spouses pass away, the other experiences this amazing loneliness, which can actually be measured physiologically as their immune system can go way, way down and completely be depleted simply because of loneliness. Pearl S. Buck, Nobel Prize winner, teacher, writer, had this to say, the person who tries to live alone will not succeed as a human being. His heart withers if it, is, if it does not answer another heart. His mind shrinks away if he hears only the echoes of his own thoughts and finds no other inspiration. Thomas Wolfe, another great author, said this, The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and to a few other solitary men, is the central and inevitable fact of human experience. That's a pretty bold statement. It's not just something that happens here and there. Rather, it's the central and inevitable fact of human existence, which is interesting because if you look at the fall, when the Bible talks about the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are what? They're separated from God. They were designed to walk with God in the Garden of Eden to have this relationship with him, but sin entered in, and it ripped apart that relationship and placed a barrier between God and humanity. And not only that, but Genesis 3 also talks about that that barrier is also then placed in the deepest and most intimate of relationships, that of the husband and the wife. Again, a barrier is placed there. And so when Thomas Wolfe says this is the central and inevitable fact of human existence, I think that Scripture would agree. Next quote, Dorothy Day. Um, Krista gave me a book, my wife gave me a book, um, called The Long Loneliness. This is, you know, several months ago. And in it, here's a great quote. She says this. She says, I was lonely, deadly lonely, and I was to find out then, as I found out so many times over and over again, that women, especially are social beings, who are not content with just husband and family, but must have a community, a group, an exchange with others, young and old, even in the busiest years of our lives, we women especially are victims of the long loneliness. She was a brilliant writer, 
uh, a Catholic social activist, and she said basically, she said at, at our core, uh, we experience this long loneliness. And then, of course, Genesis 2.18, God, the author of reality, says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, right? It's not good. As human beings, we were made for relationships, right? There's relationship within the Godhead. When God created us, he said it's not good for man to be alone. He created us for relationship. And as the church, we're called not just to relationship, but we're called to revolutionary fellowship. We're called to revolutionary community. And as scripture defines it, I basically went through scripture and tried to pull out everything I could find about these relationships. And basically, this is what I came up with, that revolutionary fellowship means laying down our lives for and serving one another. It means bearing one another's burdens and comforting one another. Revolutionary fellowship means taking part in a community where we forgive and where we are also forgiven. And there's probably a lot more that could be said. But let's, let's start with the first clause of that statement. Revolutionary fellowship means laying down our lives for and serving one another. Let's look at John, 1 John 3. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 11, says this. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another direct command. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, not only physically on the cross, right, but positionally leaving his life in heaven of comfort with his father, relationally intact with his father in order to enter into a world of flesh and dirt and of headaches and hunger and of rejection goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is in the context of the church, and Jesus is our motivating factor. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, again, this is in the context of the church in particular, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And here's the application. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us, right? I mean, right here, what John, the apostle John is saying, he spent his life, three years of his life with Jesus, he's saying, he's saying that revolutionary fellowship looks like laying down our lives for one another. This is huge, right? I, I can't begin to tell you how much you, you're, you and me, we are constantly re- reading this right now through our incredibly individualistic Western lens, right? And so we read this and we think, oh yeah, lay down our lives for one another. But the reality is in America, we have trouble laying down our lives for our, our own children, right? We have trouble laying down our lives for our wives and for our husbands, for those people who are nearest and dearest to us, much less laying down our lives for one another, for fellow believers in Christ. But that's exactly what Jesus is calling this group, this revolutionary group in order to live this life. It's revolutionary. It's revolutionary fellowship. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. Think about what that might mean just for a moment. He goes on to say that we're not only to lay down our lives for one another, but we're to serve one another. Listen to Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. So you've got freedom, right? That's speaking to our Western ears. We love the individualism. We love the freedom. You were called to be free, This is a freedom that was gained by Christ because of his obedience to the law. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Right, you're free. 
You can flourish as a human being, as an individual, right? Pursue what you're interested in. Pursue what you love. Become the best you can be. But remember that because Christ laid down his life for you, because he gave you that freedom, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to Mark 10. This is Jesus. Again, Jesus is responding here to uh, uh, James and John, where they want to sort of sit with him on the throne and uh, be on his right and left hands. And Jesus responds by saying this, Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all, and others serve one another. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus basically says, you want to be great? You want to be great? The way that you're great is by serving one another. By, In fact, he goes on to say, by being a slave or a doulos in the Greek. Be an indentured servant for somebody else. That's what it looks like to love. And Jesus goes on to say, that's what I came to do. I came to make myself a slave for you, to be an indentured servant for you, that, that you might thrive, right? So I give up my right to human flourishing in order that you might flourish. And Jesus, of course, says that this is actually the way in which you'll become great. It's always upside down and inside out Christianity. It's revolutionary. And Jesus modeled this when he washed the disciples' feet, right? He, wa- he modeled serving them. There's uh, this great story where, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, right before he's going to the cross, he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around his waist and he gets down on his hands and knees, which is what only a servant would do, and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And then in verse 12 of John 13, he says this, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Positionally, I have authority over you. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example, or I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying revolutionary fellowship, revolutionary community, revolutionary relationship is serving one another. It's laying down your life for someone else that they might thrive, that they might flourish. The best example I can think about this um, is my parents. Honestly, they're great. Uh, They're not perfect by any means, but they're great. And I'll tell you what, if I call my parents on any given day of the week between probably 8 and 5, they're both retired now, if I call my mom and I say, hey mom, what are you guys up to? She says, oh, well, your dad's over at Miss McGillicuddy's house, he's up on the roof because he's fixing a couple shingles that came loose, right? Or I call my mom and I say, hey, what's dad doing today? She says, oh, she's, you know, he's over at Mr. You know, Jones' house who's you know, a, a little bit older, and dad's, you know, cutting down some trees for him. If I call my dad and say, hey, what's mom up to today? My mom will, you know, my dad will say, oh, your mom's at church. She's holding babies in the nursery, right? My, my parents have really embraced this idea of laying down their lives, their right to flourish as human beings in order to help other people flourish, right? It wasn't their own idea. It was the idea of Christ. It, it wasn't that that was modeled to them necessarily by a parent. I could tell you their stories, but ultimately it was because it was modeled by Christ. The question is, are we a church that is practicing revolutionary fellowship? Are we loving one another well? Are we laying down our lives financially, relationally, positionally for one another? Are we serving each other as Jesus served his own disciples as he served us? Revolutionary fellowship means laying down our lives for and serving one another. It means bearing one another's burdens and comforting one another, 
It means taking part in a community where we forgive and where we are also forgiven. Second clause in that, um, that propositional statement. Revolutionary fellowship means bearing one another's burdens and comforting one another. Listen to the words of Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters. Again, this is in the context of, of the church over and over again. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. But then, he goes on to say, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Notice what it doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, slap that sinner into shape, and if they don't step into line, kick them to the curb. Paul says, restore that person, not harshly or roughly or judgmentally, but gently. And in this way, we'll actually bear one another's burdens. What Paul is saying here is he's saying the revolutionary church, this revolutionary fellowship, is actually marked by bearing one another's burdens. Now, I'm in the middle right now of reading um, Levi, um, my littlest child, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, we are currently in the section of the story right now where Sam and Frodo are making their way into Mordor because they're getting ready to throw the ring into Mount Doom to, to undo it. And as they get closer and closer into Mordor, Frodo begins to feel uh, more and more weighed down physically by the burden of this ring. But not only does he feel weighed down physically by the burden of this ring, but he feels weighed down uh, emotionally in all these other ways. And, of course, what Tolkien is doing there is he's painting this very intricate picture. It's not a direct analogy or metaphor, but, of course, that you can see life and sin and, 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 and Christianity in the church throughout all of his writings. He was a good Christian. And uh, essentially what happens is the closer they get to Mordor, the more worn, worn out and the heavier Frodo gets. And Sam, who is this wonderful picture of this, uh, of this servant, uh, of this person who has become essentially an indentured servant to Frodo, over and over again, there's the picture of Sam simply saying, hey, how can I help? Like with, with no interest to himself, with no uh, personal ambition, with no need to, to further his own cause, he simply wants to help his master Frodo out. And so what Sam does is over and over again, he sneaks stuff out of Frodo's pack to make Frodo's pack lighter, even though it means making his pack twice as heavy, right? And over and over again, Sam will eat just a couple crumbs of food and he'll give Frodo more food in order that Frodo might flourish. And not only that, there even comes a point in time where Sam, who has no, he's the only character in Lord of the Rings who has no desire and no temptation until later on for the ring. And even Sam at one point says, hey, I'll be glad to carry that miserable, wicked thing for you if it would but set you free. What, what Sam is doing is he's saying, I'll bear your burdens for you. It's this great picture of relationship. It's this great picture of fellowship, and that's exactly what Paul and Jesus was saying it would be. How are we doing? How are, how are we doing? How are you doing bearing one another's burdens? You know, even talking about this might feel, make some of you feel lonely, and that might mean that we're not doing a particularly good job, and for that, I apologize but I can only say that this is what Jesus is calling us to be and to do as the church, to bear one another's burdens. It's revolutionary fellowship. It's not only that we're to bear one another's burdens, but we're to comfort one another. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice the context here. Paul knows that losing a loved one is one of the most painful things 
that you can possibly experience, right? The, the, the physical effects of losing someone that you love are palpable. They're, they're tangible. They are real. Paul knows that. He also knows, however, that our comfort comes in knowing that both of our greatest enemies, sin and death, have been defeated in Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection. And what he's saying is that revolutionary fellowship means reminding one another of the hope of the gospel. Again, are we as a church, are we a church that's practicing this kind of revolutionary fellowship? Are we bearing one another's burdens? Are we gently restoring our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin and temptation? Are we comforting one another with the truth that God has defeated sin and death for those who trust in his son alone? Revolutionary fellowship means laying down our lives for and serving one another. It means bearing one another's burdens and comforting one another. And then finally, it means taking part in a community where we forgive and are forgiven. Listen to the words of Colossians 3. Again, this is Paul. And really, Paul's talking about our motivation to take part in a community that forgives and also acknowledges that it is forgiven. Verse 12 of Colossians 3 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. That means, that means basically bearing somebody else's suffering so much so that it becomes your own suffering. But clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In other words, what Paul is saying here is our motivation to forgive other people is the fact that we have been forgiven in Christ. How did Christ forgive us? Willingly. How did he forgive us? Proactively. How did he forgive us? Completely and totally. We are to forgive one another. Listen to Matthew 18. This is a story that Jesus tells to focus on our standard of of forgiveness. In verse 21, he says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is as long as your brother comes back and asks for forgiveness, you are to forgive him. That's, again, revolutionary forgiveness. Listen again to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. It says this, Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, it's not even that you have something against them, but if, but if you remember they've got something against you, he says this, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. In other words, the standard is that we would not simply forgive others, right? But if we know somebody's having a hard time forgiving us, that we go to them and we make it easy and we say, what can we do to be reconciled, right? We take that weight upon ourselves. Some of you are familiar with the the man named Ed Thomas. Ed Thomas was a football coach for 37 years um, in Parkersburg, Iowa. And uh, he actually, in 2008, won the National Coach of the Year. And so he was on the cover of uh, Sports Illustrated, which we have there. And he was a fantastic coach. He loved the kids that he coached. He was a huge part of the community. He was a massive part of the school. And his motto, not only for his family, but also for his football team, was faith, family, and football. And in that order, unapologetically, that was the way that he lived his life. He was a hero to uh, to his players. He was a hero to the town. And I can't go into too much of the story right now, but what I will tell you is that in 2009, one of his former players, a young man named Mark Becker, um, who was struggling with schizophrenia, uh, drove to the weight room before school one morning 
with a gun in his hand and took the life of his former coach, right? It's just an amazingly tragic, tragic story. Some of you guys are familiar with it. And what's interesting and maybe what's most compelling is the way that the family of Ed Thomas responded again, faith, family, and football. The first thing that they did after grieving for uh, a little bit themselves was they went directly to the home of Mark Becker's parents, who they, by the way, attended church with. And when the Beckers opened the door, they rushed in and they hugged one another and they wept and they cried and they asked for forgiveness and they offered forgiveness. And the next Sunday they sat in church and they worshiped together because they serve a forgiving God, a God who reached out to them to forgive them proactively, willingly, and completely. Are we as a church practicing revolutionary fellowship? Are we forgiving one another as we are being forgiven? Are we initiating forgiveness with those who have wronged us, right, and whom we have wronged? Are we willing to forgive one another uh, not only once but over and over and over again? If we are, it's revolutionary. Would I be justified today in sending you out from this place and simply saying, hey, just do it, right? Just get out there and do it. All the stuff we talked about, revolutionary fellowship, go do it. Of course not. What I would need to tell you today And what I tell you or try to tell you at the end of every sermon is that Christianity is never, ever just do it, but rather it's that Jesus did it, right? That's exactly what makes Christianity, Christianity. It's that Jesus did what we couldn't do. Jesus did what we wouldn't do. Jesus did what we didn't do. Jesus did it on our behalf. Each element of the sermon today finds its root in the fact that Jesus laid down his life for and served us. Each element of the sermon today is found in the fact that Jesus bore our greatest burdens, sin and death, and he served us. Each element of the sermon today is found in the fact that Jesus has forgiven us willingly, proactively, completely for all of our sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future, so that he might draw us back into not only a relationship with himself, but also back into a relationship with his father and even into a relationship with one another. Revolutionary fellowship means loving and serving one another. It means bearing one another's burdens and comforting one another. It means taking part in a community where we forgive and are forgiven. This morning, we have the opportunity to respond to the fact that Jesus did it, right? That he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live that he died a death that he wasn't willing for us to die, that he rose again from the dead, conquering our greatest enemies, sin and death. This morning, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so on tables behind this front section, there's a table to my right with bread and wine. There's a table on my left with bread and grape juice. And at the top, there's bread and grape juice. And as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about the, the, the different aspects, the different truths that this meal means. Because the first thing that it means is that you are forgiven, right? Willingly, completely, and even proactively. And that's all that's required for your forgiveness is to simply confess that you're a sinner and to trust in Christ alone. That's it. And so the only people that aren't allowed to come to this meal today are are people who are still trying to earn God's favor on their own or who don't acknowledge that they need it. But everybody else, those of you who trust in Jesus alone, you're welcome to come to this meal. And another element of this meal is actually fellowship. It's actually community because what this meal would have been, especially back in the first century, is it would have been these fellow believers joining together 
as a family. It's ultimately a, a family meal. It's a meal for those people who are in the family of God because of their older brother, Jesus Christ. And so when you take this meal today, I want you to remember that you're forgiven completely, proactively, willingly by God in the life and the death of his son, Jesus. And I want you to think about the implications of what that means for you. That uh, for those of you who are in this room this morning that think that somehow you're not okay with God, if you trust in Jesus alone as your savior, you're completely okay with God. For those of you in this room who feel separate and distant from God this morning, if you trust in his son Jesus alone for your salvation, then God says, no, we are, we are, we are together. There, there is no brokenness between us because of your faith in my son Jesus on your behalf. If you think somehow that what you've done is too bad or you did it, did it too many times or it was just too big or you knew better, then this meal is also for you, but you have to understand that the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus is not only more than enough to cover over your individual sins, but it's, it's enough to cover over your individual sins, past, present, and future. It's even enough to cover over all of the sins of all of humanity, all those who trust in Jesus alone, all of their sins, past, present, and future. It's more than enough to cover over all these things. Let me take a moment now, and I'm going to read what we call the words of institution And then I'm going to ask you simply to take a moment and let the truths of the Lord's Supper sink into your hearts, uh, down through your brains, that they might change not only the way that you think, but they might change the way that you feel as you hear God declare to you that you are righteous, that you are loved, that you're adopted. Let's hear the words of institution now. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death to yourself, to one another, to a watching world until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that... um, Though you call us to something that is um, either impossible or um, at least life-altering and, and revolutionary, that, Father, that, uh, that you didn't call us to do anything that you weren't willing to do yourself through the person of your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that, um, that Jesus came and he lived the very life that we can't live and haven't lived and, frankly, probably won't live much of. Um, But in that, Father, our ability to stand before you righteous is not because of us. It's rather because of your Son. And so, Father, he's our hero. He's our hope. He's our strength. Uh, He is the cleft um, in the rock that we hide in this morning. Father, I pray that we, that all of these people this morning that trust in your Son, Jesus, alone, would hear this declaration of uh, well done, good and faithful servant over them. That they would hear a declaration um, that they're safe that they would hear a declaration that they're loved, that they would hear a declaration that they've been adopted, and uh, that because they are your daughters and sons, there's nothing they can do to make you love them any more or any less than you do right now, simply because they're your children. Please let the gospel change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.